Welcome to the Centre for Personalised Medicine podcast, where we explore the promises and pitfalls of personalised medicine and ask questions about the ethical and societal challenges it creates. I'm Rachel Horton and I'm here with Gabby Samuel and in today's episode we're talking about how one person's genetic results can impact others in their family. We're joined by Professor Annika Lukasen, Director of the Centre for Personalised Medicine in Oxford and the Clinical Ethics, Law and Society Group and Dr Lisa Ballard, Senior Research Fellow in the Clinical Ethics, Law and Society Group at Southampton, who've done lots of research exploring what confidentiality means when thinking about genetic results and looking at challenges in helping families share information about genetic risks. Annika, I don't know if you mind by starting off by talking us through why it might be important to share genetic results within a family. Some conditions are due to a particular inheritance that may only have been discovered in one person. So other family members may be entirely unaware of the possibility of them having inherited it. So take, for example, a gene variant that causes a very high risk of breast or bowel cancer. That may have been discovered in one person in the family because they, say, developed a very young onset cancer, but their relatives may not know about that and may not know to go and ask whether they too are at risk. And so it may be really important to say to those relatives, actually, you could have a test to see whether or not you've inherited the same variant that causes a high risk of this particular condition. I see. So if we take a genetic result as just being kind of personal to that one person and don't think about their family, a lot of people could miss out on healthcare that might be quite important for them. Yes, I think that's right. That What you're hinting at, Rachel, is that we tend to think of medicine as very personal to the individual in front of us and sometimes forget that there are important consequences for others around them. And that might be in the pandemic where we realised that if you'd been in contact with another person, that they might be at increased risk of infection and that therefore there was a responsibility to try and find those people to alert them to being at increased risk or to protect them from transmitting it to other people. And similarly, in inherited conditions, you might need to let people know that they're at the same risk of inheriting that condition that you happen to have found in another person. So, you know, you may have found it because that person is displaying a beacon or I don't quite know what the right word is, but they're displaying some sort of um, uh, obvious sign of that condition. That's why they've been tested for it. Other people may not be there yet. Annika, if if there's this need to uh, inform family members um, in case they're at risk, how does that work? Because I suppose the the processes that are set up at the moment in the healthcare system is very much around individual confidentiality. So how does that process work in terms of informing family members? Yeah, it's a really interesting question because we've just had that sort of experience, haven't we, in the pandemic of contact tracing, but we've also got a lot of experience in sexually transmitted diseases of contact tracing that we don't tend to think of as being in any way related to that contact tracing in genetics. And in answer to your question, the practice has arisen rather sort of 
ad hoc. And we usually say to relatives in whom a genetic test has found something, can you let your relatives know, ask them to get a referral to our service so you too can be tested. And we don't tend to know how often that happens or not. You know, the relatives might live in another part of the country, so we won't know if we don't get a referral whether that communication has happened successfully or not, or or whether it's happened successfully and the relative has chosen not um, to be tested. It's, It's a bit of a ad hoc process that sometimes we're challenged to think about when a relative says, no, I'm not telling anyone else in the family, it's my secret and nobody else can know. Then I think we sometimes say, or we ought to be saying, what's my responsibility as a health professional here? Do I need to weigh the interests of these other perhaps unknown people, but known in the abstract to me in the balance with this person's wish to not communicate that to their relatives. I should just say really that in genetic practice, it's very common to start with taking a family history from someone. So the very first thing you might do, even before you've done a genetic test is say, tell me about your children, your brothers, sisters, your aunties, uncles, and you draw a picture of that. And you often take uh, quite a lot of details of those family members. So that by the time you've got a genetic test result, you as the clinician might know of say four or five people in that family by at least first name and date of birth that you think, oh, actually they have an interest in knowing about this result. So perhaps there's a particular tension in genetic practice in that we start off by asking about family details of other people. It makes me think, and I suppose this is to either you or Lisa, that puts quite a lot of responsibility on to the person who's just been perhaps diagnosed with a particular condition and I suppose might be in a difficult frame of mind, but also I suppose also the relationships that they have with their family members and how comfortable they are to disclose that information. Are there like tools or like um, helpful guidance that you provide for them to help them through it? So I guess before I start talking about the tools, it would be helpful to talk about, like you said, Gabby, those like emotions and things that come up and what responsibility that is for the patient. Um, And when Annika said, um in clinic we we truly don't know which relatives get informed and which don't the only reason we'd know is if they came to clinic um, but what the research shows there's been lots of um, research studies on this um patient sharing with relatives and the research shows that there's a significant proportion of relatives that don't find out this health information or maybe they do but not in a timely manner or maybe not all the information and that research also details the reasons why and some of the research we've done in our own research group as well has kind of highlighted that and you've already mentioned that really so that emotional toll so you've got a patient in front of you that maybe has just been given a um, say they're at risk or they've been given a diagnosis and then they're not only dealing with that but then the responsibility of of sharing that with their relatives and there might be aspects of guilt especially if it's to a a child that you've passed it on or guilt that you don't want to um, kind of inform your parent that they've passed it on to you and there's there's lots of other issues as well that the literature kind of highlights things like family dynamics so people not speaking to family members there's kind of thinking yep I'm going to tell that person but I don't know what to say I don't know what when's the best time or they've just had a baby so or they've just um, taken their exams it's not a good time 
And also there's that element of misinformation as well. So there's one that crops up a lot in the research of people kind of saying things like, oh, well, it skips a generation or um, kind of uh, things like that. So you're you're right, Gabby, there are tools. So one of the, um, I think the widely used tool is the um, to whom it may concern letter. So the, the health professional might write a letter and maybe Annika can correct me about what exactly is in the letter, but um, kind of gen general about, you know, someone in your family has come to the clinic and it might be in your best interest to kind of contact us and um, talk about it. Just to agree with you, Lisa, that often those letters are rather sort of abstract and bland and, and they're given to patients um, to give to their relatives, but they may not find that very easy or they may wait for, for the next funeral and then think, oh, that's not quite the right time to do it either. We think as health professionals that we've done our job, tick family communication sorted, but we don't really know where they end up. And I suspect a lot of them end up staying in a crumpled heap somewhere on a pile. And the other thing I just wanted to add, more adding to my earlier point, but but given that NHS resources are so much more stretched than they used to be, we often only see people once or twice now rather than over several appointments. So we sort of go run through this checklist of got to get everything done. Oh, to whom it may concern, letter, tick, done. And off it goes without really guiding the patient through what, what they need to communicate rather than just pass on the letter what what is the essential information that needs to be transferred and how they might be helped in doing that and I think your two apps that you've created if you could say a bit about those I think they're really helpful. Thanks Annika yeah so I think um, again some of the research that we've done in our research group shows that patients do want to do this themselves so like in sexual health and maybe to um in like infectious disease to some extent it kind of is done by the health professional in or like by computer program or whatever but actually with with um genetic test results patients really want to communicate that themselves they don't think it's the health professional's responsibility kind of generally but they do want a bit of support with that and that's what we've done in our research group and with and um, people from other faculties like web science at the university of southampton we've developed some web-based interventions so the interventions kind of tackle that stuff that annika highlighted that we just don't have time to do in the clinic now um so it kind of um it looks at that um, capability. So what does the patient need to ensure that they can pass that information on um, and they've got the skills to have that conversation? So kind of action planning and maybe developing scripts and stuff. And so the opportunity planning out when is a good time, like Annika said, maybe waiting for the next funerals, not great. And, and the time element of that is kind of incorporated into our app. So we've got this option where you can electronically send the, the to whom it may concern letter or your test result or you can construct your own message and you can get it out there quite quickly um, you can even send it anonymously um, if you don't want to if you want to kind of keep it anonymous or you there's like those tricky family dynamics and then working on that kind of motivation element so just highlighting why is it important that that person gets that information and kind of capitalizing on that those are the kind of um elements those behavior change elements that we've built into our web app that can do some of that stuff that a busy health professional just cannot get done and something the patient can do in their own time 
I find this so fascinating, this kind of idea that you're developing an app to really help individuals in this particular situation. Um, and it's really making me think about the relationship between care and healthcare, and also between like patient autonomy and paternalism, and they all kind of mix together. And here it seems that the app is is kind of ticking a lot of those boxes to ensuring the needs of the person are met. Are there any instances where where that isn't the case? Like, is the app out? Is it being used? Or are there any like drawbacks to using app-based systems? So it isn't in use. We've got a patient group from 100,000 Genomes Project. So the app's been heavily kind of developed with those patients, so um, patients that have had a genetic test result. There's certainly drawbacks. I mean, I'm quite passionate. We do a lot of work in our research group around um, underserved groups. And that's definitely one thing. I've I've developed this app with people that aren't from an underserved group, white middle-class women really is the the group I've developed this with. And that's something I would love to do some more work on. How can we take something like this and make sure that it's appropriate for for other groups? And I'm sure there's lots of research out there around that, but there there isn't another app that does this. There isn't an app that works in this way um, anywhere. So I think that's, that's a great point. Web applications are incredibly popular and there's a good reason for it. They're cost effective. They don't take up the health professional's time, but they're timely for the patient and not everyone has access and the way it's written and how it's targeted. I think there's so much work that can be done to make sure it's useful for lots of other people, the, the people that really need it, the people that aren't communicating that for all the reasons that we've identified. I can think of a few clinical examples that have come up either in my own practice or nationally discussed at the Genetics Forum that have taken up an awful lot of time because people have really worried about whether they're breaching confidence or not. And they, the, the usual scenario is um, somebody's really angry with their clinician for suggesting they contact their relatives because they want to be assured that their clinical information is kept confidential they don't want that shared with anyone and before you know it it's become a very sort of adversarial situation where the clinician feels accused of wanting to share information inappropriately and the relative says no this is my information you know I'm not close to my relatives they they haven't been very friendly to me recently just leave it with me and 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 butt out only to find that when that information is then followed up, say, a year later or, you know, sometime later, that actually that initial communication got way too focused on the clinical information and that when those people who were who start off being really angry realise that all that we're trying to do is let other people know there is a test available for them and it doesn't have to say anything about that first person it doesn't have to say this person has got cancer or this person has had a test and that's relevant to you all we're trying to do is alert close relatives who we now know are at risk but they don't know it themselves that they could have a test that all the anxiety falls away and I've seen people turn right round where they've you know <laughs> one example where somebody was really angry and didn't want any further contact with the clinician that they had met, when met sometime later, was really anxious to hear that those relatives that she'd initially uh, been angry about had heard that information because she realised after some time has passed 
the tension about breaching confidentiality is completely gone because the patient has realized it's not about breaching their clinical confidence. It's about telling family members they're at risk and then they're completely on board. And I think the app that Lisa talks about can be really helpful in that sort of situation, but not everybody will be using apps. And so we've got to also think about other ways of of supporting that. No, and it sounds like there's so much potential usefulness in the app. And especially because I guess, as you said at the beginning, it's funny that lots of the situations of family communication that get a lot of attention and worry are the very rare actually situations where people at least initially feel they don't want to inform their family or might have concerns about what that would involve whereas actually it sounds like there are so many people who would want to tell their family but just don't necessarily have the tools to do that easily or we've presented it and that we as clinicians have presented it the wrong way to them we've we've talked about this being an issue that we need their consent for rather than an issue about warning relatives of something more abstract that they can go and find out more information about. Does having something like an app alongside, say, uh, health professionals supporting and helping patients through this raise questions about not just where responsibility lies, but how that could be developed, I suppose, into guidelines or policies, because I'm not suggesting guidelines and policies are correct, but it ultimately there needs to be somebody responsible for this decision? I think it has to be a shared decision. Um, But I think you're right, Gabby, that we're not very good as health professionals at at thinking that one through logically. And and usually where we get to is, oh, we couldn't possibly have the responsibility to contact relatives because they haven't been referred to us, they're not our patients, and we're too busy anyway with doing our day jobs to then go and find a load of other relatives, you know, sort of trying to track down relatives in in Australia that we haven't got contact details for. But that's sort of deflecting from the issue. I think for me, the issue is if I know there are specific relatives who are closely related to this patient in whom I found a result, what is my responsibility to ensure that they get to hear about that. And I think that responsibility that I have has to be discharged together with the patient in whom I found that result or in whom that result has been found to work to make a shared decision that these relatives do have an interest in knowing. So how can we best go about letting them know about that thing they have an interest in knowing? There's a recent court case that actually was helpful as well as being a bit of a distraction here because it was a case in negligence. What was helpful about it is that the judge said that clinicians have a duty to weigh in the balance the interest of the patient in front of them and their confidentiality with the interest in their relatives in knowing something that puts them at high risk for which they might be able to take measures to somehow reduce that risk. And so we've got to do this balancing exercise. We can't just say, well, you know, can't do anything without consent. It all stops there. That's A, not good medicine. And B, it just doesn't make any sense really in genetic medicine to think that everything can be solved by consent because genetic medicine is all about how people are related and shared inheritances that may just be found in one person but don't therefore belong to that one person to veto the use for anyone else. 
So it's about shared responsibilities from both the, the healthcare professional and also at the patients as well. And then having an app that can be used to support that responsibility as patients go on the journey. Yeah, but also I think recognizing that if, you know, let's let's create a scenario where that absolutely doesn't work, where the app doesn't work and the patient doesn't want to tell anyone else. I think these are rare as hen's teeth. There's usually some other explanation. Let's just imagine that you have a, a really um, a patient who absolutely does not want their relative to know because they're worried that um, that will have some sort of implications for them. I think that clinicians then still have a responsibility to think about those relatives and to think about communicating the risk to their relatives without breaching the confidence of that patient. So the responsibility doesn't stop with, oh, I've handed something over to the patient and it doesn't stop with, oh, I haven't got consent, so therefore I can't do anything. We, that responsibility continues. It sounds like a minefield, doesn't it, Rachel? <laughs> so many different stages of thinking through how, how to address these really complex issues. Absolutely. Annika, I've heard you talk before about a kind of a joint account sort of analogy for thinking about, I guess, these issues that genetic information might not just be in one person in a family. Um, would you mind telling us a little bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, the joint account analogy, I think, has been very useful to think about these issues, but also people have been quite critical of it because we started off by saying, well, it's like a joint bank account. You both got rights of access. And then everybody said, oh, bank accounts are completely different. And da, da, da. so I actually liked the sort of development of that that called it a, a joint account as in a joint family story rather than a joint bank account. But for me, that analogy has been useful because it's led me to think there is a difference between something that we all inherit. I know that I share more genetic information with my parents than I would with you, Rachel, or you, Gabby, and that I might need to let other people know about their potential inheritance without that saying anything about how that inheritance has shown itself in me. So if, I, if my sister gets to hear of the particular gene that's caused my symptoms that won't tell her about my symptoms it just tells her about her own risks. Lisa from your experience and, and you know speaking to patients do people like have an understanding of genetic risk and and like what are their views on sharing genetic information does it kind of align with I suppose how healthcare professionals see this or is it a slightly different perspective? I couldn't comment on their understanding of genetic risk but what I can comment on is a, um, something that kind of relates back to that responsibility in all my interviews and, and that case that Annika has kind of talked about, that unlikely case where someone refuses and what is a health professional's responsibility. And that I asked every person I interviewed, do you think it's a health professional's responsibility to contact your relative and share that information, even if you refuse? And um, interestingly, um, qu quite a lot, over 50% of patients said, well, it's kind of not my responsibility for that person not to hear. So I think the, the health professional is kind of within their right to share. It's not fair either if we've fallen out or I've said no, why should my relative suffer? But the, the caveat to that is that they're just people sat in front of me without a result to share with their relative. So it's quite very theoretical they they don't have all the complexities that we kind of talked about before but it's it's quite interesting 
because I think health professionals are often well quite rightly very cautious and you know we're all bound by you know thinking about confidentiality Caldecott principles we have it kind of drilled into us whereas the patient is a bit freer from that um, to, to kind of hear that they don't think it's beyond the the pale for their health professional to contact their relative um, yeah I think it's it's interesting. I think your research and Sandy Deans's research has shown that patients most definitely construct their inherited genetic information as something different to their clinical information and that they would say their relatives have a right to know what they too might have inherited without that saying anything about their clinical information. So I think the patients that you've interviewed over various research projects have a better ability to differentiate genetic information from clinical information than often the health professionals looking after them do because the health professionals often said to us oh our patients wouldn't want that when the patient said oh well I'm sure our health professionals would tell our family members anyway so there's a big misunderstanding in in that research. So curious that there's that really um, different perspective on what the other people might think if you had to pick one message for people to take away from this podcast and um, what would it be? Um, I think we should think about genetic information much more like infectious disease information where we wouldn't worry so much about communicating the risks to others even if those others infer where they might have picked the infection up from. I think we could think about that model much more in genetics than we've been able to do so far. I guess like my main message would be to the research community and health professionals for us to start thinking about what how can we go beyond that that to whom it may concern letter what can we do to to make it as easy as possible because the research shows that patients want to do it themselves and they know the importance they understand why it's important but then there are all these other barriers as to why it doesn't get done or doesn't get done in a timely manner so to really start thinking what what can we do to make that job that difficult job of passing on that information to their relative how can we make it as easy as possible remove as many barriers as possible um, and to do to do a bit more around that I think Thank you for listening to this episode of the Centre for Personalised Medicine podcast. If you'd like to find out more about personalised medicine and its promises and challenges, please visit the Centre for Personalised Medicine website at cpm.well.ox.ac.uk.